Welcome to episode 78 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm a New York Times bestselling author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And so today we are talking about... Um, what happens when you're no longer the shiny new debut, um, or mm-hmm. I think as Kelly can say, when you're no longer the baby of the family? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, so this is a kind of obviously a little bit of a personal topic for me because I am more or less wrapped up with my second book. And it has been a roller coaster of a process, even for somebody like me who worked in the business before. Like, you know, so let's let's just start with this is a little bit more of a career type thing, because I think a lot of people don't think of what their career is going to be like beyond the first book. You know, it's it's hard to imagine because there's so much stuff out there about getting published, right? You know, mm-hmm. there's it's everything. It's it's like basically it's like, you know, you read a book and um and the story ends at happily ever after. They've got like the your characters have gotten together romantically, but then it there's no story about what happens after that, right? <laughs> like, you know, all the petty fights about laundry or who leaves the toilet seat up or down or, you know, all that sort of smaller things that aren't dramatized because it doesn't have the same sort of happy resolution. And this isn't to say that after your book has been published that everything goes downhill, but I do think your context changes about what success is. And we've talked about this before, right? Like we talked about what success means in publishing and how you define that for yourself and all that sort of stuff. And I think the hardest part for a lot of people, especially after the emotional highs that come with being a debut, I think it's hard for people to figure out, okay, so I've hit this milestone. What else can I reach for? Mm-hmm. Um, not only what else can I reach for, <laughs> I think the other hard thing that you have to figure out once you've been published is you start to realize how much is not in your control. Right. Yes. A lot of the process is not in your control. Um, and I think, I think that's a lot of what writers do have to reckon with is what to let go. Um, I don't know what expectations do you think are, what things in publishing, let's list the things in publishing that are beyond your control. (laughs) (laughs) Everything done. Um, The things in publishing that are beyond your control. So, um, your cover. Mm -hmm. You don't get to choose your cover. Your cover is not in your control. Honestly, how your book is received is not under your control. Mm. I think that's the biggest thing people sort of struggle with sometimes. And I don't even mean critical reception because, you know, everyone's opinion is different. So that's not really what Mm -hmm. it is. I think... 
people have an idea of how their book is going to be received. Um, you know, emotionally, people connection to the story or their characters or this or that. And, um, and we're not even talking about sales. We'll get to sales at a whole other, <laughs> whole other point. Um, because sales really is not under your control. It is and it isn't. I mean, everything in publishing is and is not under your control, which is probably why this business is not particularly great for people with anxiety, I think. Mm. Um, but the your reception, I think you, I think a lot of people have an idea of where their book fits in a market or a comparison to something else. I mean, we do this all the time. We have comp titles. We, Mm -hmm. you know, when we're working on the publishing side, like when I was an editor, I definitely, when I had a book to acquire, it's idealistic to say that I'm, I'm trying to edit a story to make the best story it is, which is what I did, obviously. Like I would take the manuscript and I would try and make it the best it was or the most, the truest version of itself. But you also have to think about where this book is going to stand in context with everything else. Um, I don't know. What about you? When you, when you send books on submission, what do you think of, or do you have this in mind as well? Yeah. I mean, this is the complicated part, right? Because I've had, um, conversations with my authors about this, about where I think their book fits in the market and why I'm targeting specific editors or imprints, um, you know, based on an idea that I have about the book and, and where it fits kind of in the world. Um, and so I think in a way it's hard because we spend a lot of time telling authors like, we almost give them these expectations that like, this is, you know, what we're thinking and this is what we're trying to position your book at. And when the marketing team gets a hold of it, there will be a lot of that talk too. of like, this is who we're trying to target and this is, you know, what we're aiming for. Um, and so I think it's understandable that authors get this picture in their head of what things are going to be like, but maybe the thing that we don't tell authors as much as we should is that this is all guesswork and nothing is certain and we can't guarantee that anything that we're aiming for is what's going to happen. Um, the entire industry is about anticipating what readers want to read. And we have a lot of tools at our disposal that make us really good guessers (laughs) about what readers want to read, but, um, it happens and, and it, and it happens regularly enough that we're just plain wrong that, you know, that we, we assume that this is what the market wants and the market doesn't want it. Um, or vice versa. We totally miss, Mm -hmm. you know, something completely flies under the radar that we think nobody wants and then it blows up in a huge way. Um, and I think that, you know, I think that informing authors about what we're shooting for is important. It's important for authors to know what we're working toward, um, and why, and who we're trying to reach and what we um, are expecting. But it's also, I think, important to talk to authors about the fact that our expectations are not infallible. They're not set in stone. We're not mind readers or fortune tellers. We're just doing some very educated guesswork. It's 
the cognitive dissonance is, I think, what is the hardest to navigate in this business because it is true when we say that your book will find its way into the hands of its readers, so you can't write to the market. You just can't. Mm-hmm. I think people can tell. I think, or at least I feel like I can tell, when something somebody has written feels like it's cashing in on a trend or... Um, that the author maybe doesn't necessarily have a personal connection with the work that they're trying to tell. I think, I think that can come across in, in writing. Um, so there is that cognitive dissonance of, well, you shouldn't do things or you shouldn't write something simply because it's commercial. You know, it, it, it's still what is kind of the hard part about this business is you're still basically the kid trying to figure out where you're going to be picked. Like it for a sports game, you know, right? Like, am I going to be picked last? Am I going to be picked first? Like, you're still waiting. And, you know, people make those decisions when they're picking for teams based on talent, right? Based on talent and how this person would work with your team and all that sort of stuff. That is really kind of what publishing is as well. You know, you're, you're picking people to draft your team. You're, you know, you're picking manuscripts because you think it will do well or, you know, you can foresee the the place on your list that it would work and function. You can, you know, there's, there's a lot of that. Um, and that's, okay, this is from the publishing side. And so for me, like, I knew all of this going into my debut year and going into writing my second book. I knew all of this sort of stuff. And I understood that there was going to be cognitive dissonance. Plus, all of my writer friends have all universally said that second books are just terrible. They're just terrible. Um, And not that the publishing experience of publishing a second book is terrible, but the actual writing of it. Because you have this all of this sudden cognitive dissonance to deal with. Because everyone wants the Cinderella story. They want to be the one that's chosen. They want to be, you know, the one that's lifted out and given a pretty dress and then they become, you know, the ruler of the kingdom or whatever. But that doesn't happen for the vast majority of us. So what, so when that story doesn't happen or that's not the ending you get, then trying to figure out how to move forward beyond that. I think is is emotionally a big hurdle for a lot of people to come over to get over, um, and I see this a lot in debut groups. You know, my debut de- debut group, of course. You know, there are a lot of you know Facebook messages or um, you know like Google groups and stuff like that where people kind of talk about these shared experiences because you can't. It's not like querying, right? It's not like writing about your journey to getting published. No one, not everyone is going to share that experience with you, and therefore it's hard to be public about it. But this is me reassuring everybody who is going through a second book process that you are not alone. That in fact, the very and you know, though I would I would venture that even the most successful writers, however you choose to define success, still have this problem still have that emotional hurdle of getting over this is what I wanted and this is what I expected and this is the reality of the situation um god this is such a downer episode I'm sorry y'all like it's not no 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 
This is like our, this is what we do. I know, right? <laughs> we just go around slowly puncturing everyone's, you know, bubbles. We're very on brand right now. Very on brand. <laughs> haven't, haven't m- mentioned Harry Potter yet so far, but. And I'm how sure much we come. hate the ending. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think that, um, that that reality is important to talk about and to talk about openly. And I think that, like you said, a lot of people don't know what to do with, that kind of cognitive dissonance when things aren't the way that you thought that they'd be, or even if they are, you know, like sometimes things play out exactly like as you would want. And it's still strange, you know, Mm -hmm. like living a thing and experiencing it is still different than imagining it in your head. Even if you become the Cinderella story and you become a bestseller and you, you know, sell out your advance and you're the next big thing and number one on the New York times bestseller list and all that. Um, even if all your dreams come true when they're actually happening to you and impacting your life, that's very different than just the highlights reel in your head that you imagine. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think that, I think that it's good to talk about, you know, both the highs and the lows of that because, people don't know. And then I think, you know, we've talked before where you get into this space where, um, your circle of confidants closes Mm -hmm. because kind of like when everyone's in the querying stage, you can just kind of like shout out into the void because it's a universal experience. Everyone who wants to be traditionally published queries. And so you can kind of like everyone is on your team. And then when you get an agent that kind of separates you from the people that don't have one. And then when you get a publishing deal, it separates you from the people who don't have one of those. And it's like your circle gets smaller and smaller and the people that you can confide in and process things with become smaller and smaller. So you don't often find writers talking about this sort of a thing publicly. You know, they're doing it privately with their close friends, um, but they're not talking about this stuff publicly because it's just, it's complicated. It's complicated and you never want to be the person that sounds like they're complaining about the good luck Mm. that they've received, right? Because it, I mean, publishing really is a combination of talent, hard work, and timing, Right. You know, so a lot of things that happen are a product of luck, you know, as much as we talk about. You know, you can manufacture financial success to a certain degree, but whether or not things hit a cultural nerve, that's not in anybody's control. You know, that's just, it takes some savvy business decisions maybe to capitalize on that sort of cultural nerve, but you can't manufacture it, I think. And so nobody wants to be the person being like, Oh, woe is me. Like poor little rich author. Like you don't, you don't ever want to talk about those sorts of hardships. Um, but here's the other thing. So I'm going to be completely candid from a business perspective. The reason the second book is the hardest is because now you have a track record Mm -hmm. and that track record is actually not under your control at all. And we've alluded to this before too, about why people take pseudonyms, why, um, people re, you know, have another name for a different kind of a book or, you know, that sort of things. It's partially for branding reasons, but it's also because you do, you have baggage for the lack of a better word. Yeah. That's going to follow you. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it determines how many copies, you know, the sales of your first book determine how many copies often that, you know, bookstores or accounts will take of your second 
uh, whether or not returns were you know high or low, all those sorts of factors go into people making business decisions about whether or not to stock your book. So that in itself is mm-hmm. such a huge thing because you have all these expectations and then when you hit the reality of it, there's a whole world of other expectations that you didn't realize were there. Mm-hmm. And then learning to navigate and cope with those expectations is a whole other process, I think. And so, you know, there's often, I would say there's probably like three different ways you can talk about it. And they each come with emotional emotional landmines, I think. You know, so you have a book and it underperforms. Mm. Um, of course, the definition of underperforming could be imaginary because I think some people, you know, think that, oh, my book should have done better. But in fact, it is a financial success. It's just not the financial success that they wanted or whatever. But, you know, right. there's that. There is your book does perform to expectations. And then there is, you know, when your book exceeds expectations. So we can kind of go through how to navigate the different mind states, I guess, that come after that. But, like, say your book doesn't perform to expectations obviously now you're going to feel pressure to make sure your next book does better right Mm -hmm. and then often you're tied up that ties up writing the second book in many ways too for a lot of people where okay so the first book didn't hit as well as we would have hoped so how do we make this better what went wrong i think that a lot of people sit and they, they stew in that what went wrong and as we said at the beginning, at the top of this podcast, that there's so much that's not in your control. The fact that your book did not perform to expectations is likely not anyone's actual, it, you know, there's not one thing you could point to and say, this mm-hmm. was your fault. It didn't go as we planned, you know, but that's still something that you have to come to terms with. Right. And it, you know, that's something that you have to deal with at, as you are writing your second book and also as you're promoting your first one, a lot of those things, like it, it, it's hard to get your mind around it emotionally screws people up. I think it, this is an often a huge part of writer's block for people because now they have all these other expectations or they felt like they failed. How do you overcome that? So I think that's kind of one set of baggage that comes along. Now, when your book hits expectations and is doing well, I think even though your book is doing well or, you know, is doing great and everybody's pleased with how things are going, I think it depending on the sort of person you are, I think you there's no way to avoid comparing yourself, mm. right, to other people's success. So even though you may have you perfectly satisfied your publisher, you still feel like for some reason that, you know, well, if I'm not doing as well as this person, maybe they'll still drop me. I know a lot of people, particularly women, I think, because society teaches us that, you know, mm-hmm. we're always the imposter syndrome is far more common in women than it is in men that, you know, so we sort of sit there and we go, OK, well. If I didn't do as well as this person, then what did I do wrong? You right? So there's kind of that emotional baggage. And there's also then that fear too that what if my next project doesn't do the same? Like what if my next project doesn't do as well? I think a lot of people mm-hmm. wrestle with that too. Like 
and that person sort of then sits there and go, well, how do I replicate the success of my first book? Do I give them more? Do I give my readers more of what they want? Or, mm-hmm. you know, do I, you know, it, trying to stay true to your own artistic vision when now all of a sudden you have all these competing voices to work with is also hard. And I think that's what happened to me. You know, there are multiple reasons for me personally. And of course, every situation is different, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone's circumstances are different. So the reasons why book two is hard is going to be kind of tailored to each individual. But for me, writing book two was hard because people liked so many things about my first book. And then I felt like, oh my God, well, what if I'm disappointing them if I don't give them enough of what they wanted in the second book? Mm -hmm. And then there's kind of the third one, which I don't think the vast majority of us will probably never reach this point. But I think for people who have a meteoric first book success, where can you possibly go with that? Yeah. And in some ways, I think that must be the hardest and almost the loneliest factor to deal with. You know, if you have... Yeah. yeah. The pressure to maintain that is so enormous because it's almost as if you can't go up. You've already hit the peak, achieved so much, you know, how can you possibly go up? So your only hope is really to maintain a similar level of success. And then there's so far to fall (laughs) from there. And that's not to say that, you know, that again, that if you fell or if your second book did quote unquote less well than the first one, that it would be by any means a failure. You know, if you, once your success is that astronomical, you know, you, you can, you know, go down several ladder rungs without really getting into trouble. Um, but that's still, it's just such a, you know, if your first book hits the list and then your second one doesn't, or if your you know, your first book hits this financial milestone and your second one doesn't, you know, it, even if your publisher is still pleased with you, still happy to be working with you, it's not a threat to your career trajectory at all. Mentally, that's tough to to process and to deal with. And, you know, and so I do agree with you that in some ways that's the hardest because you're walking such a fine line at that point, just hoping to do as well as before. And you've got such a long way to fall. I think, I mean, look at, we're going to, we're going to bring it up. Harry Potter. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was no way J.K. Rowling was going to follow up Harry Potter with something more of the same and achieve the same level of success that she mm-hmm. did with Harry Potter. And I think for a while, like, so, you know, she the next project that she did after Harry Potter was The Casual Vacancy, which was almost as different from Harry Potter as you could possibly get, right? It's It's a small town. It's basically about small British town politics is really what that book is about. And it's an adult book. There's no magic. It's, you know, and I think I'm pretty sure the sales of that book were, were excellent. So it's not like it's a financial thing, but I think expectations people had of, of JK Rowling, I, I imagine must've prompted her to write under a pseudonym. And I think she had said that, too, before she was finally revealed as being the uh, actual author of the Robert Galbraith novels. You know, she just wanted to know if she could write a good book that didn't have her name attached to it. And, you know, she's obviously rich enough that she doesn't have to worry about, you know, 
feeding her family. Right, how it does. How it yeah. does. But I think emotionally for her, it must have been cathartic. Because those books were pretty well-received. Those, you know, critically well-received, and they did commercially fine, you know, and, and until they, of course, took off because they're like, oh, it's J.K. Rowling writing as Robert Galbraith. But, like, um, and I think that must have been probably really a, a big relief for her. But then you look at it now. She's returning to the Harry Potter universe, and it's a little bit like, Joe, Joanne, please stop. We don't need any more. This is yeah, no, be good. No. <laughs> and I also think that must be a big reason as to why there's been five years between John Green's last book and his most recent one. Yes, you know, and he himself has talked about how difficult it was writing a follow-up to *The Fault in Our Stars*. Because that book just, you know, it just took off and it was this huge deal and it reached so far beyond his original audience because his original audience was, you know, teens, right? It's YA. Yeah. But The Fault in Our Stars reached way beyond just YA and it really hit the mainstream in a way that his other books, while also critically received, well received, just did not. So how do you follow Mm -hmm. that up? And I think, you know... I think there are reasons why that it took five years for Turtles all the way down. I, and it's also why I think the announcement of its publication was so shrouded in secrecy for such a long time. Yeah. Because people, I'm pretty sure, I mean, obviously this is a business decision, but, you know, you hype it up too soon and then you're going to get the audience's expectations up too high. You know, and you could never possibly match those. So I think, you know, like all of a sudden, boom, new John Green book. And then everyone's like, oh, wait, what? And then it's already out. And then I think yeah. curiosity drives people to to read it. And I have not read Turtles All the Way Down yet. But, you know, I'm, I imagine it's what John Green does well. So, you know, it's going to be a John Green book no matter what. But it's absolutely... I think, and he's he's talked about it on his own podcast with his brother about how how hard it was to write, you know. And I mm-hmm. I do applaud him for at least being candid about that because I think a lot of people just don't talk about that at all. Um, so I think those are the three types of success slash expectation levels that I think a lot of people deal with when it comes to writing their second book. Now, the reality of writing your second book, and I think I've talked about this before, that you're in a different mental place, be, not, not just because of the expectations of your first book, whatever they were. You're in a different mental place because generally for most of us, this is the first time we are writing to a contracted deadline mm-hmm. and writing a first draft to a contracted deadline as opposed to, you know, most debuts, you acquire full manuscripts. You, you, I mean, there are stories where people do acquire debut manuscripts for fiction, fiction. I'm going to be specific fiction on proposal, but they're not as common. Um, no, not at at all. all. Most of the time it's a full manuscript that has been submitted and then there's an editing process. But by particularly again, NYA because that's what I edited and that's what I write. The publishing schedule for YA is generally one a year. 
so generally for your first book, if you're a debut YA writer, you've already written your manuscript, and then you've edited it with your agent generally, however long that takes, a couple of months or whatever it was. Then you go on submission, and then it's edited again with your publisher, and that's maybe another couple of months. And then, you know, after the final manuscript has been turned in, it's maybe like six months, and then it's published. So it's a different time frame as opposed to writing to a contract at deadline, you have far less time to kind of perfect it the way a lot of people perfect their first book, like, or not perfect it in terms of craft, but just perfect it to the point that they want emotionally, that they emotionally feel satisfied it. And it's this expression of the story that they wanted to tell. You do not have that luxury for your second book. Even if you do manage to write your first book before your second book before your first book comes out, you still have less time because now you're also, for the most part, probably less one pair of eyes. Your agent is unlikely to edit your manuscript mm-hmm. before your editor sees it, so that's different. I think for you have to draft your book in a specific amount of time and then you have to edit that book in a specific amount of time. You don't have this long lead up. You don't have the luxury of a long editorial process, not anymore. And I think that's hard. Um and it is a little bit weird too because of the one a year schedule. We talked before previous podcasts about launch sales conference, all those sorts of things, because publishing is scheduled a year in advance. It generally means that you are working on a book before, even as the book previous has just come out. So now you have to sort of split your writer self into two different parts, the part, the author self that is promoting the book that's out now, and then the writer self that is trying to create a work of art separate from the first book. So, you know, it it just starts to get much more complicated after that. Um, And I think the deadline thing is actually a huge deal. You know, this is the first time you have a drafting deadline. And before, for most of us anyway, writing is probably a hobby before we become published. It's something that we take joy in. It's something that we write to escape from whatever else we have to do. This is our outlet. But what happens when that outlet is no longer an outlet? I think that, you know, before, particularly for Winter Song, I could just write in it whenever I felt like it. You know, there was no timing pressure on it. There was no logistical stuff that I had to deal with in terms of when it when it needed to go to production, when it needed to do this, when all that sort of stuff. I didn't have to worry about that with... Winter Song, but with Shadow Song, I had to be very regimented about how many words I was trying to get out per day, you know. And for somebody like me, who is a complete and total pantser, usually means that I have to write a book before I figure out what it was that I wrote in the first place, and then I have to do it again, but Mm -hmm. properly. (laughs) And that's really hard, and I had to figure out a whole new way to write, you know, I didn't have the luxury of exploring this this story the same way. So, you know, and, and a lot of times writers talk about word hitting word counts and things like that. And that does work for me, particularly because I think I write in scenes. 
So, you know, and for me, a scene is generally around 2,500 words. I can write like a scene a day, maybe two if I'm really pushing it, if I'm really trying to draft quickly. Um, but that sort of like time to figure it out, you don't really have that anymore. You sort of have mm-hmm. to do multiple things at the same time. So you have to figure things out even at the same time you're trying to structure your story as a whole. So for me, that was really, really hard. Um, and and I do like structure. I like a schedule. I like a routine. But, you know, there is pressure, I think, to be able to do consistent work every single day. But that's not possible. It's not possible in any field. You cannot have consistent performance it all averages out to a consistent performance but you know it's right it's there's always ups and downs for example today I had a a writing day where it just every single word was terrible like and I would sit there and I would second guess every word like you know is this character walking maybe they're not walking maybe they're just kind of shuffling along or maybe they're hobbling like (laughs) you just sit there and you nitpick and five hours of writing you've only written less than a hundred words like like that kind of day and then there are other days where I can write a lot and the story has moved forward very quickly and you know and that all again all averages out over time so but you know now you have this pressure because you have a deadline and it's coming up and it's coming up and it's coming up and then you start to think about oh god well now what do I have to do to catch up to get to the point where I think I need to be in order to make my deadline um so there's there's like that process of of trying to navigate the actual writing of it. Also, and I think this is pretty universally true, I think the second book is really what determines whether or not you're in the business to stay. Mm. If you can handle, not just, you know, physically or logistically handle being a published writer, I think emotionally handle being a published writer. And I don't blame anybody if they just kind of get through it and they're so overwhelmed by the whole process that they're just like, maybe I don't want to write another book, you know? And I understand that. I've <laughs> I have been tempted myself where I'm like in the middle of it being like, this is too hard. Why did I choose this? What, what, you know, I could have returned the money. Y'all made a mistake. I can't do it. Um, and I, I, I feel a lot of sympathy for that, that, you know, it's so overwhelming that you don't know what to do. So what do you do after all that? After all these sorts of pressures, what do you, what do you do? What would you tell your, what would you tell your clients, Kelly? <laughs> I think really the only thing to do is to go back to the craft and the writing and just write the book like ultimately your circumstances around you know why you're writing the book and being under contract and having deadlines and having expectations and having a readership and having you know all of this additional noise around you does complicate things and I think I mean again I don't know I've never written one book let alone two but I imagine that the only way to survive it is to find a way to shut it out Mm -hmm. and to just write the book. And I don't know how that works for individual people. Like I know that a lot of people say like, step away from Goodreads. Don't read, don't read reviews of your book. Like don't, don't engage with the 
reaction or the reception that your book is getting as much as you can. Of course, that's so hard because how can you possibly not um, engage in those things? Um, you know, but I, I know that that works for some people and some people swear by that. I know that, um, you know, the, the process of shutting everything else out and getting back to your story will probably manifest differently for everyone, but I think that ultimately that's what you have to strive to do. You have to find a way to distill your focus back to telling the story that you want to tell. And if you can't find a way to do that, I think you'll just be driven beyond all reason. Like it will just become so overwhelming, all this other external pressure and noise that you you'll drown in it. You know, you can't accomplish anything. It's paralyzing. And so, yeah, I don't know that I have any specific suggestions for how to do that, but that's what I would tell my authors is find a way to shut everything else out, find a way, find your way back to the story that you want to tell and then tell it. I also think that, you know, it will, it, it's, it is a platitude for a reason, but we say the only thing that matters is the book and you, you, everyone comes to that conclusion in their own way, right? The only thing you have under your control is the next book. And so what you have to do at that point, I think, is come to peace or come to terms with the book and have to, as, as Kelly said, shut out the noise and find basically the pure storytelling that made you a writer in the first place. Like, why did you want to write? Most people want to write because they want to tell a story. You know, I'm sure there are people out there who want to write for other reasons, but most of us, I think we become writers because we like to tell ourselves stories, right? And that is the only thing you can control. So you have to come back to that you have to discover the reason you like to create, the reason you want to tell the story, and try and shut out the end product, I think. Um, and I think for me, what helped a lot once I stopped, once writing became a job and not a hobby, was to find another hobby. <laughs> I think for me, the creative impulse is the same no matter what discipline I'm in. And, you know, I think all, all artistic pursuits is that you have a vision or a song or whatever it is. You have something that is in, in your mind that you want to execute and that you want to realize in the real world. I think that artistic impulse is the same, you know, if you're a knitter, if you're a, you know, scrapbook maker, if you're a cook, if you're, you know, anything that's a hobby that gives you joy and execution and, and realizing whatever you had in your, your mind, I think finding a hobby that allows that creative impulse without any actual pressure on it. So for me, that was photography. And as a kid, I'd always liked taking photos and I'd always had nice photographs. And I enjoyed it. And it was really, really, you know, once I, once writing was a job and what did I do? Because before writing was something I did to escape my job. So what do I do now to escape my other job? How do I, how do I escape my new job of being a writer? Exactly. (laughs) Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, I, I, 
I've, I had a, I had a nice camera and, you know, I just started learning about photography again and, and having ideas and then trying to figure out how I was going to execute these ideas and all those sorts of things. And it really helped. It helped that this was another, this was something that I could control, right? This is something that I could control that nobody else had expectations on how I was going to execute it. So I think for me, that's probably my biggest piece of advice is just find something else that brings you joy that you don't have any pressure to, mm-hmm. you don't feel beholden to anybody else's expectations of. So that's, I think that's kind of what I have to say about the whole second book post debut experience. I don't know if there's any holes. Is there anything that you can think of that? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I think the only thing that I would think that we didn't specifically touch on is whether or not how many books were contracted for your debut. Yes. So sometimes people are contracted with a standalone and then other times um, they're contracted, you know, for a two book deal or three book deal, whether it's a series or two standalones or whatever. Um, And so that can kind of change things a little bit if um, you've only contracted one book. Um, you know, that could impact your experience. Most of the time, the publisher that you contracted with will have some kind of an option. So whatever your next book is going to be, they will get a look at it first. So it will be slightly different than going back out on sub the same way that you did the first time around. Um, But if there is no option or if the publisher doesn't exercise the option and chooses not to take the book or if you don't like their offer and walk away, um, you know, then you'd kind of go on another round of submission, which would be sort of the same as your first time, but also different. Yeah. (laughs) Because again, you have that, you have that set of expectations. Um, so that's the only thing that I don't, I think we didn't talk specifically about. And again, um, I think we just kind of said, I just said everything that I would need to say about it. It can kind of vary, but you know, it, it is different. Um, to know upfront, like, you know, if you contract two books as part of your debut, then you have at least a sense of knowing, okay, my next book is contracted. So, you know, you at least have that security and then all the pressures of writing under deadline and all that stuff apply. If you only contract one book at a time, then there's this added component of not knowing what is going to happen next. And, you know, trying to determine, like, am I writing a sequel to the first book? Am I going in a totally different direction? Am I going to be working with this publisher again or go on sub to find a different publisher? Yeah, there's the career planning aspect of it because you sort of, even though you you try not to think about it because you will drive yourself nuts, I think, trying Mm -hmm. to control every aspect of what happens next. But you do have to think about some of these things sometimes. Like, is this cohesive? You know, is this is this a book that's a complete if it's a completely different audience or genre, then you kind of have to build everything from scratch again, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and you sort and it's that question of does this make sense as a follow up? Right. That's that's also a big one. Like and then you're you're trying to define this nebulous idea of what is a you book. Right. You write the right. you write the first one because you're like, oh, this is a story I liked and I enjoyed it and it was fun. And then it's out there and it's a real thing. And, and then you're like, well, what what do people what what makes sense for the next book that I write? And that's really hard for a lot of people. And it is 
you know, there are certain people, Sarah Dessen is actually someone who only contracts one book at a time. And I find this fascinating because, and she can do it because again, you know, a lot of these things that we're talking about, you know, JK Rowling and John Green, they they have financial stability that they are able to make these sort of, sort of artistic decisions for themselves. So obviously there's going to be an asterisk behind, you know, next to all of these stories, but Sarah Dustin only contracts a single book at a time because I think the experience of having to write to a deadline or expectations and all that was really detrimental to her writing process. And she also only ever, she doesn't submit on proposal or an option. She writes the book Mm -hmm. and then essentially goes on submission again to her own publishing house. And I know, I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast probably just had a heart attack, uh, especially if they are on, (laughs) if they are on submission. Um, But I, to some extent, I kind of understand that because then you're essentially recreating that process of writing your first book again, right? That period Mm -hmm. of time and that space where this book is yours and it's only yours, you know, and it's, I think, and I, I understand that point of view from, from Sarah Dessen because it is a lot of pressure to be publishing a year at a a book a year. You know, this Mm -hmm. is again, this is YA. This is say nothing of romance because those romance writers can publish two, three, four. It depends on what line you write for. It depends, you know, even Nora Roberts, La Nora, as I think a lot of people call her, and she writes consistently amazing books. Tons, tons of books. Tons of books. And she just, she just write. I can't, I don't know how. <laughs> and the thing is amazing. Uh, is like none of them. I think they're all distinct from each other too. Like there's distinctly mm-hmm. a Nora Roberts book, but mm-hmm. the stories are different. The characters are different. You know, she doesn't basically repackage the same story over and over again, which I think can happen. Um, yeah. You know, oh, especially yeah. in long running series, I think ultimately, I think, things get recycled over and over again. But I don't know. Some people could do that. And I, I look at her in amazement. She also runs a bed and breakfast. Like, I don't know. Does she, does she have seven clones? I mean, how does Nora Roberts do it? I don't know. I don't know. That woman always had a million books in the air when I was at writer's house. I remember people telling me like, Oh, what's get me the copy of the Nora Roberts contract. We're in the middle of negotiating. And I was like, there's like six, which one, (laughs) (laughs) which one do you mean exactly? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, these are all sorts of things that, you know, once you are, once you are published, trying to figure out what the next step is, is always hard, you know, entry level. It's like, you know, when you go for a job interview, you're fresh out of college and you don't have any job experience, you know, and you're looking for a job. And at first you think just job, any job will, if somebody will just hire me, but once you're in that job, then you sort of start having to navigate, okay, what's next for you in terms of career? You know, do you want to stay in Mm -hmm. this position? Um, do you want to get promoted? Do you want to move to another department? You know, all those things still exist in publishing as much as we want this idea that, you know, we write something and then it's going to be out in the world. You know, that's never been true of, of any artist in history. All artists have had to hustle in some way or another. And, you know, 
art and commerce are strange bedfellows, right? Like you just, that is something that I think anybody in a creative field will just, this is something that everybody is trying to define for themselves over and over and over again. And I also say this too. I think if you've been in this publish, if you've been in the industry five years, if you have been able to publish and continue to put out work for five years, I think it gets easier after that. Yes. Uh, and I don't mean it gets easier to write because I think every book is hard because every book teaches you how to write the book you just finished. And you, ne- you don't necessarily carry over the same thing from book to book. But I think it gets easier because I think by the end of five years, you have gone through a huge range of experiences and expectations. So things are f- are less surprising to you after having been in the business for five years. And I hate to say mm. relevant because it's not really the word I'm looking for, but you know, that you're consistently publishing basically that you are, you've written, you've sold and you, you, you consistently sell new projects and new ideas. I think if you've been in this business for five years, then you're, uh, you were what we would call a lifer. I think, I think you could probably do it for a while. So there is, there's a little bit of a, a hump to get to, but I do think that at least emotionally and maturity wise, I think it's easier to handle after that. So there's that. Mm-hmm. But I know a lot of people are like, but I just want to get published first. And I was like, I know, I know, I know. It's it's hard. Don't get me wrong. It is hard. So, um, and it's funny that, like, I should probably go back and listen to our earlier podcast because I can't remember where in my writing journey I started doing this with you. <laughs> you were querying? Winter Song? Winter Song was done when we started, and I think you were querying, and then you got an agent shortly thereafter. Mm-hmm. So it's almost been your whole process, I think. Yeah, this is happening in real time for me, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> and what, we started in 2015? Yeah. 2015, because Hamilton had just dropped. Yes, that's right. Wow, has it really been that long? I know. Almost. It's been about, it's been, it's definitely been two years, Kelly, so, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We should have, like, a podcast birthday party. We should have a podcast birthday party, which was earlier this year in September, because I think that's when we started. I know. (laughs) Whoops. Whoops. Next year, for our third year, we'll do that. Um so there you go. All right. Do we have anything else that we want to say on this topic or all right, let's no. like we can move on. So what are you working on? Um, well, I just got back from vacation, so I'm still not really working on anything. <laughs> I had, uh, I went away for the week of Thanksgiving and so now I'm just coming back and it's Wednesday today. So I had Monday to kind of sit and stare at my email and just feel overwhelmed And then Tuesday, I actually started to read some of my email. And so now it's Wednesday, so maybe now I'll start doing, like, some work now that I've been back three days. Um, But, yeah, no real, not too many updates from the last time I think I've still got a potential secret 
project in the works, but heavy uh, emphasis on the word potential. Um, and then other projects still out on sub. So we'll see what happens with those. I think last time I was talking about how I had fallen head over heels in love with a manuscript that I crash read. I lost the author. She signed with someone else. That's two in a row. Ouch. It's so, it was hard. I mean, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> It was hard. It was very hard. Um, but I'm also, like, with both projects that I lost, it hurts. Like, in a real way. I mean, rejection sucks. But also, I just, I know, like, I have a surety that these books are going to get deals and become published. And there's a part of me that's, like, buried way down underneath all the, like, moaning and whining and crying that is, like, really excited that they're going to be books someday. Like, I want right, them, right. like, I want to be able to buy them and read them because <laughs> they're so good. Um, and I wish they were mine, but they're not. Uh, yeah, I had that so as yeah, an editor, too, one. where there were, like, a lot of books. Yeah. Like, well, I guess I couldn't be the one to shepherd it into the world, but... Into the world. But someone else yeah, will, and eventually yeah. I'll, I'll be able to have it on my bookshelf in some way or another. So, yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so that hurt. That, that was really... That was tough. Uh, but, yeah, otherwise, I am um, really... I have a lot of work to do. I really want to start or end, rather, the year with a clean slate. I know that a lot of people in publishing feel this way. We really don't want to carry stuff over into the next year. So all of us, I think, across the board are trying really hard to answer queries and requested reading. Oh my god, I have some requested reading that has been sitting for like a shamefully long amount of time. And I can't let it get to the year mark, so I have to finish it um, before it's been a year. So I'm really working hard on just trying to catch up and get things done and be able to, you know, um, start the new year fresh without things hanging over me, um, which I hope is how editors feel too. So that I'll get some news back on my submission. Oh yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, it's always that process of trying to manage your, your, your to-do list really. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. So yeah, that's what I'm working on right now. What about you? I am working on the first book in my next series. Um, most uh, Shadow Song is done. It's you know like I finished first pass a couple weeks ago. Um, I know galleys are out in the world now because I got a box of them as well. So I guess people are reading them for the first time. And to be completely honest, I just don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I hate saying that because I obviously I'm proud of this book and I it, it took a lot from me to even write it, to be honest. It, it was a very difficult writing process and I'm very proud of the work I did. But there's also a part of me that is just emotionally burned out to the point where I'm just like, oh, it's a thing. Mm -hmm. It's a thing. It's out there. You can enjoy it or not. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Just take it away from me. Kind Do of. Do with it what you will. Kind of. And again, I don't want to, to sound cynical about it because I am proud of it. And I and I think it, and I'm, I just, I love the way it ended and it really made me feel. But it's also like the part of me that cared about the reception of Winter Song just doesn't exist for this book anymore. <laughs> That must be freeing. It is actually quite freeing because, um, you know, I think for Winter Song, I, I've read 
in the early stages when the arcs had just gone out and the galleys and people were reading it for the first time. I wanted to know how it was being received, so I like was reading good reviews and everything. I think I saw good read reviews like the other day for Shadow Song, and I was like, meh. <laughs> They're a thing, I guess. People, some people loved it, some people hated it, some people were meh about it, and that's about right, I think. With any book, you're going to have people who love it, you're going to have people who hate it, and then you're going to have people who are just indifferent to it. And that is what it is with every book. And that is actually quite freeing. Like, I just don't care about it. I am happy with the work that I did, and I'm I'm happy and I'm really, really satisfied with the ending of this series and the duology that I'd done. And it's just like, and I'm ready to move on. So, um, but I am drafting the first book in my next series, which... I think we had announced on the podcast um, it is sort of um, inspired by Sailor Moon and it's set in an East Asian inspired fantasy land and I'm having a lot of fun with it because it's, it is different. It is a little bit different in tone from the first, not a little bit, it's actually quite it's lighter basically than Shadow Song and, and Winter Song because those two books are just emotional, like just harrowing actually is what they were. Um, so that's fun. But I think this one's harder in a different way because translating cultural nuance into English is very difficult. And trying to figure out how to convey that in English without being info dumpy about it mm. without without it sounding like a lecture you know there's this is a world that people live in so they're not going to explain these things they're not going to think about them right yet at the same time i don't want my readers to be completely lost uh and not really understand what's going on so that's been a dif- a different writing challenge altogether just trying to figure that out i mean the biggest example that I can think of right now is that most East Asian languages don't have a gendered third person pronoun. It just doesn't exist. Whereas, you know, we have he, she, um, it, and now they as a sort of a singular third person pronoun uh, that's gender neutral. But, like, there's no he or she in East Asian languages. It's just a third person uh, so I didn't know that. Yeah, that's um, there is just the there's just no he or she. It's just a you're just a third person. <laughs> the other thing is, um, most again, most East Asian languages have levels of formality in their speech as well. So there's a certain way of speaking when you're speaking with strangers, with people who are. Um, higher up than you, not higher up. That's kind of weird. But there's like this Confucian idea of superiority, um, just, or more experience. So people who are older than you or people who are, um, like your boss or, and, and strangers, you use a certain level of formality of speech that is actually quite distancing. And the way it's distancing is we never use the second person. So if I were talking to you, and you're a stranger to me, or you're my boss or whatever, I would talk to Kelly as though she were, even though I'm talking to her right now, it's almost as though she's not there because I'm not using the Mm -hmm. second person pronoun. And that's a weird way of speech for people who speakers of English to get around in also because English itself has lost the informal second person pronoun. 
you know, the whole thee, thou, thy, that used to be our informal second person, but that doesn't exist anymore. It's all just you. So that's difficult. And also you signal intimacy with people by using the second person, by saying you. And that's a signal of intimacy. And also if you use it without signaling intimacy, it's actually considered very rude. (laughs) Right. So these are all cultural nuances that I've just explained to everyone here. But how do you write that? How do you, without people getting confused? So those are things that were tripping Mm -hmm. me up. And those are, you know, things that I had to wrestle with in writing this uh, book. But I'm having fun with it. You know, I, I'm, it's, I think just cause it's totally different and it feels like a, not that it feels like my debut, but if it, there's that feeling that it still belongs to me because they have, no one else has met these characters yet except me. So that's fun. So it still feels like it's private in a way that Shadow Song never did. <laughs> um, so have you been reading anything? Did you read anything over vacation? I did. Um, I read um, the final installment of the Gold Seer trilogy by Ray Carson, which is in all the bright places, Mm. I think Mm -hmm. is the title of it. Um, So I read that um, and I enjoyed it very much. And that's such an interesting series to me because each book really contains truly its own Story And there are, like, story elements that carry through, like, a season, like, not a season, a a series-long arc, but it doesn't have any of these, like, cliffhangers and, like, the villains change from book to book, and it's more, like, every book is really almost kind of like a standalone that's, like, linked by the people that are in them. Um, So I found that interesting. Um, And this was a very different story than the previous two. But I liked it. I like Ray Carson. I like the way that she writes. I think she's great. Uh, and then I also read This Mortal Coil by Emily. I'm looking up her name because I can't remember the final bit of her name. This Mortal Coil by Emily Suvada, um, which I'm assuming that you haven't read no. based on your face. <laughs> so you have to read it because I need to talk to somebody about it because I have complicated feelings. It is the first book in a long time that I remember reading and very early on in the book hitting that moment of oh what the hell (laughs) oh expletive Um, because I'm trying to think of the last book that did it I mean it might have been way 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 back to the Hunger Games because it's so easy to think of the Hunger Games now as like this thing that there's Mm -hmm. been a lot of books that are derivative from it but like when I first read the Hunger Games there was nothing else like that book and I remember reading that book and getting to that point where I was just like I'm not going to be able to put this down until I'm at the end like I cannot go on with my life until I finish this book I'm just so consumed and I had a moment like that early on in this mortal mortal coil uh halfway through the first chapter where I was like okay well this is my day now like yeah nothing else until I'm done um and it was a very yeah so um so I read that and it's a strange and interesting book I liked it I don't mean to make it sound like I didn't like it I did like it 
the direction that it ended up going in was very different from mm. what I had expected based on that early chapter. Um, and I knew nothing about the book going in. I didn't even really know what it was about. I'd heard people talking about it as being something that was really gripping. Um, but I didn't know anything about the plot or, you know, anything like that. Um, and so it was a good book, but I need someone to process it with. <laughs> so, so you should read it. Okay. Um, and then I'm trying to think, is there any, I think I already, I think those are the only two books that I read over the week. So yeah. What about you? I didn't read anything and you know why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can just go straight in. Dragon age. Yeah. It's like we can just go straight into the off menu recommendations. You're a video game addict. I love it. Uh, it's just this particular video game because I don't know if I mentioned mm-hmm. that I was I tried Skyrim and I did not nah. get into it and I didn't like it. Um, I feel a little bit bad because I know a lot of people who really enjoyed Skyrim and I just I I couldn't get into Skyrim at all. And part of it was a POV issue, but I found out how to switch to third person, which didn't actually help. <laughs> Because first person actually makes me motion sick. Um, And so I switched it to third person, and I just, I, the characters are, are, you fill the world with yourself. And that, I guess, is not what I'm looking for in a gaming experience, apparently. So I'm not looking for, even though I told you, like, I wanted a Sims-like game, this is not really a Sims-like game. It's just, Skyrim is an open world, so you can kind of do whatever you want. There's no real, like, quote, story. And that's actually not what I want. I do want a Sims. Yeah, you want a story. And I do. I want a story. So I went, so I'd finished Inquisition, Dragon Age Inquisition, a while back, as I talked about. So I went back and I decided I was going to do the other two Dragon Age games. Um, So it's like reading book three and then going back to read books one and two, because I had no context for book three. Um, So I logged I think 46 hours of Dragon Age and I just started it like last week and I finished it at 2am last night Uh, (laughs) um, and it's funny because Kelly you had mentioned you you and David were playing Dragon Age like two years ago on this podcast we're still playing We are still playing Dragon Age. So it, I've mentioned before, um, we wanted a video game to play together. Uh, and so we started two years ago and my daughter was quite young. And But because we play together, it has to be a time when we're both free, when we both want to play, when we both have time to play, because we were playing on a more difficult setting. And so like the first 45 minutes that we open the game is just us like upgrading our weapons and like (laughs) switching over to different armor and crap like it's not actually playing a game it's just like prepping to play the game for the first 45 minutes so you need like a good three hour chunk for us to play together to get anything done and i don't know i would say that we play maybe like three to four hours a month (laughs) like if we're lucky (laughs) so it it's been very slow for us and uh and i'm really jealous that you finished and my husband is actually on a work trip this week. And I was like, maybe I'll just finish it. <laughs> you should just do it. But I can't I, do I need someone I to talk about this. I need somebody to finish the game so we could talk about the choices we made. It was like when you had well, played Life finally... is Strange. And then you were waiting know, for me to get to the game. And I was like, I know, I'll get there, I'll get I there. I know. 
It took you too long. It took you so I long. I know, it did take me way um, too long. <laughs> uh, but apparently, um, the next Life is Strange game is out, the prequel before the storm is out and has been out since like June. And none of you guys told us. And I just want to say that was, that was really not very nice of any of you. No, I'm personally mad at each and every one of you. Absolutely. <laughs> you guys telling me, you that. guys know how much we love that game to the point where Kelly and I are still looking for a book that makes us feel yeah. the way life yeah. is strange made us feel. <laughs> Still on my manuscript wish list is the Life is Strange book. Give it to me. Mm, I, I want to read that book so badly. I know. I know. Uh, yeah, that's all I've done is is play Dragon Age. Um, I, <laughs> I bought a PS4. <laughs> I'm so jealous. I'm so jealous. I have not received it yet, so because I did finish Dragon Age, I was like, I'm not going to start Dragon Age 2. Until P- the PS4 gets here, which will be for a while. And to be honest, I don't think I will start Dragon Age 2 until after the new year. And possibly after yeah. my book is, my first book has been turned in. I was going to say, yeah, maybe you should write the book first. Well, like, I'm thinking about it because I'm drafting the the first book. And honestly, playing a video game has actually really helped, or rather playing Dragon Age has really helped in terms of writing. Um... Because I am, as I've mentioned before, a pantser and terrible with plot. Um, because it, it, for me, it's like I'm writing something from the inside out. You know, I'm discovering it. And it's just this unruly garden that I have to continually, you know, weed and replant and, you know, up, you know, tear everything out and start over. Like, that's basically what my writing process is like. Now, the my next series is different because it is a planned four-book series, so I have to have a, an overall trajectory in mind, but the way it's, it, it does make me think about story differently, because the things that are, you know, the, there are quests and things that you have to do, but the reason I like Dragon Age as opposed to Skyrim was because I cared about the characters that I was doing these quests for. So, what... And I and I remember playing this game and trying to figure out why I, it was that I, you know, why do I care about these characters in a way? Why am I invested in what happens to them? Like, it's, it's a it was a different experience. And so it makes me think about rewriting or rather the, every character interaction is whether or not uh, the approval score has gone up or down. <laughs> like a little little pop up heart at the bottom that says, you know. Um, not exactly, but that's, it does, it makes me think because it does make, at least for me, it made me, it changed me or it changed how I was playing because I was, I wanted to get specific Mm -hmm. characters approvals. Um, so it made it much more immersive in a different way. And so I, I liked that experience a lot. I really, really enjoyed, um, and it really is, I, it, it ultimately does come down to the characters for me. The characters are what got me through Life is Strange because there were part... And also the setup of that game was really interesting. Um, But it's such a story... Life is Strange is such a story-driven game. And it's such a relationship choice-driven game, right? Because all the choices you make do have ramifications on the story. But they all come from a really personal, emotional place for you Mm -hmm. as Max. So... Um, and it's a little bit for me, for this Dragon Age was sort of similar because the choices I was making for the story came from me as 
this character that I created um, and how this character was interacting with everybody else. So characters really do matter um, for video games. So now that I have a PS4, y'all can tell me what, what games I should be playing um, once I finish with the perfect playthroughs of Dragon Age that I intend to do once I'm done. <laughs> Like, make all the... Because this time around, I didn't recruit Leliana. So I was like, well, now I have to do that. So... <laughs> what, a, what about you? Any off-menu recommendations? I don't think so. I have not watched anything on TV. I have not uh, done anything. I mean, I was on vacation. It was pretty... Almost entirely media-free. Just hanging out with my family. So... No new TV, no, not even a new, like, phone game on my phone. Nothing. Nothing new. I have difficulty playing games on my phone. I don't. (laughs) (laughs) I have a lot of them. I have a lot of them. I I I guess it depends, because what, there's Animal Crossing now, Pocket Edition? I think that's for your phone. I've never played any of those. I play a lot of puzzle games on my phone. Okay, I play puzzle games. Uh, I play generally 2048. That's like the only game I have on the phone at the moment. But it's like now I have to get to 16,000 something. Like that's like the next level up that I have to do. And I'm like, I'm never going to get there. It's fine. Um, I play puzzle games. Like I used to play Sudoku on my phone. Mm -hmm. I I guess that's not what I was thinking of when I was thinking of games. Yeah, I don't play too many game games. I played Oxenfree, which was excellent. I didn't realize that was available on the phone. I played that on my computer. Really? I played it mm-hmm. on my phone. Um, I play the Mario game. <laughs> Nintendo released an app from the phone. <laughs> and okay, I, now I have to do this. It's really addicting. And I refuse to pay for... Like, the additional, like, you, there's, like, a paywall at some point. It's, like, free to play until a certain point. Um, and then, you know, you have to pay an additional fee. And I refuse to do that. Um, I'm very, very stingy with my in-app purchases. So I, like, reserve them for, like, things that I can't possibly live without. So I'm just playing the same, like, 12 Mario levels over and over <laughs> and over again. And just getting better and better at them. And they've introduced, like, little side games that are really fun. It's the dumbest, most mindless thing. And I will sit there and play it for entirely too long. I, I don't um, know. I'm so used to the old Nintendo console that I'm not even sure. It's strange. It is strange. And it's a side-scroller. You don't you don't control him. It's just a runner. So he runs and you jump over stuff. And oh, okay. It. Um, yeah. Uh, the other one that I actually played, not recently, but um, in October, I traveled a little bit and I downloaded it for the plane. It's called Reigns. R-E-I-G-N-S. Is that hmm. right? Or am I spelling that wrong? Um, and it's like a... Card game is not the right word, but it kind of is. Cards appear on the screen, and you... Um, like, they'll ask you questions, and you swipe, like, yes one direction or no the other direction. And the conceit of the game is that you are um, a king governing, you know, your kingdom... And up at the top, there's four categories. There's, like, the people, the church, the army, and the treasury. And you have to keep them all in balance. And if they get out of balance, then bad things happen. Yeah, it's like, um, 
It's kind of like civilization, actually. A little yeah. bit. And you just sit there and, like, flick. Like, literally, all the whole gameplay is just swiping either one way or the other. And you watch your levels, like, based on the choices that you make. And then there's also this background mystery that you have to try to solve while you're there. Um, it's addicting as hell. <laughs> I haven't solved the mystery yet. I've played through, you get like, I don't know, like a thousand years to play of generations of different kings. And then when you get to the end of the timeline, they tell you like, oh, you're dead. And either you win or you don't win. I've never won. So I need to keep playing until I win. (laughs) But it's really addicting. And it's strange because it took me a little while to figure out that you have to keep everything in balance. Because at first I was really like, I want to be a beloved king and I want my people to love me. And I would like make all these choices so that my subjects would love me. And then the army would revolt against me or like the church would like excommunicate (laughs) me and kick me out or whatever. So it was hard to, you need to be more strategic than I was, but there you go. Yeah, those, Those are like board games Mark and I play. Actually, so Mark and I went to Asheville over um, the Thanksgiving weekend. It was like a mini vacation uh, because he doesn't really have that much time off. But we went to Asheville and, you know, we did things in Asheville, just like hanging out. We went to the Biltmore Estate, but we were walking around town. (laughs) So Asheville has what they call a pinball museum which is really just an arcade. You just pay 15 bucks at the door and then you can just play all of the games <gasps> that they have there. Really? Um, yes, it's amazing. I, I'm terrible at pinball, but Mark is actually really good at it. So like, um, And they have old arcade games as well, like Pac-Man and all those sorts of stuff. But we mostly just were playing the, the pinball machines. But um, so, but there was like a like an hour-long wait. You know, you put your name down, then they'll call you later. So we just sort of walking around Asheville to figure out what we're going to do to kill time. And we found a board game cafe. And uh, Mark loves board games. Mark actually really is like the huge gamer in our household. I, as until recently, would never have considered myself a gamer by any stretch. But And I kind of still don't. I enjoy it, but it's... Yeah, I have that same thing. But, um... He loves board games, and so we often play board games. It's hard to play the sort of board games that we like with just two people because, like, you know, we like sort of collaborative board games and things like yeah. that. Um, so often it's, like, people come over. Mark has his, like, weekly Dungeons & Dragons Skype thing with all of his friends, you know. that That's sort of, like, that's kind of the person he is. But so we went to this board game cafe, and that was really fun. We There are board game cafes around here. There's one in... in the close, the other closest big city here, but there isn't one in our actual town, which I think is kind of a pity because again, yeah. like if you like playing board games the way you do, but there's just the two of us, you know, and it's not as fun when it's just two, when it's really like most of these games are meant for like four or more people. Mm-hmm. And I think it's more fun when there's four or more people. Um, so, but that's what we did. That was fun. And then we went back and we played pinball machines. And then afterwards I couldn't figure out why, you know, the muscle that connects your wrist to yeah. your elbow. <laughs> like, the next day, I was like, what on earth is, like, what was I... And I was like, oh, I was pressing the pin, the, the flip, the for the flippers on the pinball machine. That's why it hurts so badly. <laughs> that's what happens when, you get, when you're old, kids. That's, that's Yeah, that's the truth. So, uh, we did get a question on Twitter. <clears throat> I don't think we have any new reviews, right? We do. We do have a new review? We have a new review. Yay! Yay! 
<laughs> the approval rating keeps going up, you guys. Right, Hooray! the little hearts on the bottom of the screen. Um, all right, so today's we did get a question. We did kind of put this out sort of late, but so this uh. is from Emily Hoka, I think. And the question is, how many queries should I send before considering giving up? Oh, that's rough. Um, so my first client that I signed, um, when I was talking to her after she'd already signed with me and we were just kind of chatting and I was like, well, what led you to query me? And we were kind of going through this whole thing. Um, and she told me that she had sworn that she was only going to query 50 agents. And after she queried 50 agents, she was going to give up. And I was agent number 52 that she had queried. (laughs) So obviously I'm very glad that she didn't stop at 50. Um, I don't know that there is a magic number for people. There's a lot of agents out there. Um, Obviously you want to research. You want to make sure that you're querying people that you actually want to work with who are actually experienced and know what they're doing. Um, you know, you don't just want to sign with anyone. Um, so don't query people that you wouldn't actually accept an offer of representation from is a good suggestion to start. Yep. Um, you know, and then give up means a lot of things. You know, I don't think you should give up and, you know, stop writing and never, you know, write another thing as long as you live. Maybe the the project that you're querying isn't the right one and you need to set it aside and write something else and query again with something else. Um, you know, I think giving up is something you're the only person who can decide when it's time to walk away. But I think that rejection is a normal major part of the process. You're going to get a lot of rejections and, you know, um, I don't know how many is too many, but I know that like 10, 20, 30, even 40 is, is not too few. Um, you just keep going until you find the right person. Yeah. I think that it's hard to, to say if there's a specific number for anybody, there are a lot of agents out there and, and a lot of those agents, a lot of them, it's just not the right project at the right time. You know, Mm -hmm. that they might have represented it at a different point if they, you know, there are multiple reasons people give for rejections that don't necessarily have to do with your work. But I would say that I think you, I think you would start to get a sense Mm -hmm. when something isn't working and that where that point is for anybody is going to vary, right? It's going to be different from person to person. But I think if you start to see the same trend in terms of what you're getting in rejections that aren't, I would, I would say like the vast majority of re- rejections you're going to get are, are going to be the form, not for me. And yeah. there's nothing you can do about that. And at that, if that's just what you're getting, then I think you just keep going until you run out of agents. Yeah. There's no reason not to, but if the rejections you're getting have similar criticisms, then maybe it's time to consider, okay, maybe there's something about the story that's not working. So, um, that really does depend on person to person. I think the rejection rate, it all depends. I think if you're only getting form rejections across the board, then like literally only form rejections across the board, then I think that 
maybe there's just maybe rethink writing your query. Maybe it's the query that's the problem and not actually anything else. Yeah. Right. Um, because I think the, you know, you cast your net wide, you're going to get nibbles. So I think even if the rejection rate is high, you should get at least somebody who's at least, you know, Hey, I'll take a look. Mm-hmm. So, but if you're only getting no's and not even a single person who's like, hey, I'll take a look, then I might rethink, okay, maybe it's the query that's the problem and then not actually. Yeah. So that's kind of the only other piece of advice I can give. Um, we did have a question in the email that was, that we're not going to read because it's um, specific to the person's situation, but the mm-hmm. basic gist of the question was, what does it take to be an agent? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so agenting is an interesting profession in that literally anybody can do it. Anybody can put up a website and say, I am a literary agent, and that's all you need to call yourself that. There is no certification program, there's no oversight board, there's no school you need to go to or license you need to get or anything like that. It's completely unregulated field. Um, you know, so I guess the 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 horrible answer is, you know, you can just do it. Like just just start one. Um that's a terrible answer though. Um agenting is very much almost like an apprenticeship type of business. You learn from other people. The best way to become a good agent is to work for other agents and learn from them. Um, Usually that means either interning or assisting someone in the industry. Um, We have talked here about how to get internships or how to get um, assistant positions before, so I won't go too far into that. Um, more and more places are starting to offer remote internships. Um, I know that there's been a real push to pay interns, which is important. Access is a big problem in the publishing industry. Um, that is very much an ongoing struggle, and I won't pretend that it's not there. Um, but we've talked about those things before, and we'll probably talk about them again, so I won't really go into it at length here. But in short, the best way to become an agent is to work for someone who is an agent and learn from them. Um, it, assembling the industry contract, uh, industry contacts, um, the editors in the industry, the other people in the industry that you need to know and work closely with, um, learning the ins and outs of things like contracts, um, of, you know, how to submit a book of how to edit, of how to maintain client relationships in a professional way. You know, there's a lot of things that you need to learn how to do. And most of it is hands-on learning. You're not going to find a book that will teach you how to become an agent or a blog or, you know, anything else. It's really about getting in there and and doing it firsthand and learning from someone. I don't think it is the type of job that you can just say that you're going to do, um, and get by just on the strength of your convictions. I think the people who open their own agencies with no prior agency experience are usually people with a lot of industry experience. So they're editors or they were publicists or they were booksellers, or they had some kind of foothold in the industry that meant that they knew what they were getting into. Um, agents have a high burnout rate. People leave 
agencies by the dozens of constantly people are constantly dropping off and leaving the industry because it's hard and because you don't make any money unless the author makes money and because you're doing a ton of work you know for no money at all hours I work on weekends I work nights you know most agents do um, without getting paid I don't get a paycheck for any of that work and so it's a hard job and you have to hustle and I think that a lot of people are like, oh, well, I really love books, and so I have great taste, and I will be a good agent. And it's so much more complicated than that. And so I think the best way to learn whether or not uh, this type of work is really for you is to work for someone else. And, you know, publishing doesn't pay well, but at least assistant you know, positions pay. So at least you can earn some money while trying to figure out whether or not this is something that you really want to do. Um, yeah, intern for somebody or become an assistant and learn firsthand from people who are doing the job. Also, this is not a job with a steady paycheck. No. So if you go into it saying, well, I'm going to sell my friend's project for X amount of money or I'm going to sell this book for X amount of money and then I'm going to make this amount of money every month that is not how it works. Nope. Especially as royalty checks only come in twice a year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so there are many, many reasons that it just doesn't work like another job in a major corporation. A lot of this is going to be on spec. And it's the same thing as a writer, right? It's the flip side. It's, it's an, you know, you get paid a salary when you work in a publishing house. But if you are on the author side of the business, it's not, you are all contractors. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just kind of the way it is. It's a gig. It's a gig position. You can have a career as, as a, an agent for sure, and you can build up this base for yourself, but essentially it's still a gigging job. You're a freelancer. So, um, but yeah, Kelly is right. There's no way to become an agent except to work for somebody else and build your contacts because mm-hmm. you start to understand who's working, who's inquiring, who's acquiring, and what sort of books they like. It's just, you get into the, but you need that foot in the door. I have to admit that that's true. You need the foot in the door. You need people to introduce you. And that's the most important part. Mm-hmm. So, I did not realize we had a review. So, Kelly, do you want to read it? Since you love reading reviews. Sure, I do love reviews. They make me so happy. Uh, I will read this one now. Here we go. Scroll down to the bottom. My phone finally updated when I wasn't paying attention overnight one time. And so now everything looks different. And I'm like, where is everything? I'm one of those, I'm one of those people. I will resist the updates constantly. Okay. Um... So this review is from Storyfish, supportive and honest. I found this podcast six months ago, just as I was finishing the rewrite of a novel manuscript. I was hoping to transition from closet writer to career writer, but needed to know more about my next steps in the publishing industry. JJ and Kelly delivered in spades with their funny, brutally honest and supportive banter. These On brand. Yes. (laughs) 
pub crawl, brutally honest. Um, <laughs> these writing and publishing industry mavens became my commute BFFs. I learned how to write query letters with confidence and how to create a strong submission strategy. Thanks, pub crawl, for your insider advice and recommendations. Thank you, Storyfish. Thank you. Yay. All right. Um, yeah, brutally honest is is basically what should be the should be the like the subtitle publishing publishing girl podcast. Booze. We don't talk about booze ever. I know. Books we should just, brutally honest advice. Yeah. <laughs> books, boo, books, booze, and brutal honesty is basically yes, yes. Um, well, thank you guys for the review. Uh, we love them. Kelly especially loves them. Mm-hmm. So uh, keep true. them going for to raise Kelly's approval ratings. <laughs> It's just how I think of everything now. It's, like, it's true. The little hearts. Little, the little heart at the corner hearts. of the screen. <laughs> That's all for this week. Next week, we will do another mini-series on uh, writing craft. So we'll actually do another series on characterization. So last time we talked about characterization, we sort of did different character types. But this one, we're going to go a little bit more into the mechanics of them, like how to craft a compelling character, what makes a character three-dimensional, all that sort of stuff. So as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast and it makes me very happy. And we all know Kelly needs to be very happy. (laughs) It's true. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or my website, penandparsley.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Retribution Rails, available now. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl.com, send us an ask through Tumblr, or on Twitter using the hashtag AskPubCrawl. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. So, and it's also because I was thinking of that because I was describing the context of Dragon Age to her. And she's like, I should play it. And I was like, you should play it. <laughs> Everyone should play it. <laughs> you need to be in hell with me. <laughs> like... Ha <laughs> ha